Hey guys, we are currently in our vision series that started back in October and will run through the end of the year. We've been centering ourselves and our church on the idea of apprenticeship to Jesus. Our goal, and you may be tired of hearing it, but too bad, is this. We believe that we need to be actively and intentionally participating in counter formation. We do this by teaching community practice within the environment of the Holy Spirit over time and through the hard knocks of life. The last few weeks in particular, we've been zeroing in on the role that community plays in our formation. If you missed any of the teachings, go back and podcast them. Josh taught a couple weeks ago about how community isn't optional for the apprentice of Jesus. Last week, Bethany explained how being in community can be an avenue of healing in spite of its difficulties. This week, we're going to be talking about when community is tough when there's conflict, when there's sin, when people miss the mark. Welcome to church. Now, you may not know this, but my role for the church is to head up all of our Van City communities, which simply means that when things go wrong, I get blamed. Just kidding. Uh, I have the privilege of helping start new communities, investing in and empowering community leaders, problem-solving issues when things go sideways in a community, celebrating with communities and mourning with them. In the, uh, in the words of Josh, which he stole from the movie Fury, uh, best job I ever had. I get to see the success stories and the struggles and everything in between. If you've been through the basics class we do in order to plug in uh, people into a Van City community, you've heard us say that the number one killer of communities is what? Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, flakiness. You want to see a community implode quickly, just put a bunch of commitment-adverse people together. Trust me, it's frustrating, but it's easy to decipher what's happening. People aren't showing up when they're supposed to. On the other hand, something that I see slowly kill communities, that strangles their life and impact for the kingdom, is silence. Let me explain. Person one objectively sins against person two, but person two won't approach them about it because they don't want to be mean or it would be too awkward or because of their own emotional immaturity. Or it's person one sins in a really destructive way, but the rest of the community won't say anything since the person might not take it well. Let me tell you, being in community is really messy. People are tough. There's this thing called sin that we all struggle with. And if it's not sin, it's personality differences. I often see new communities that are created uh, bond fairly well over the first few months. And then personalities start conflicting. And then people's struggles and failings and sins start coming out. And it's fairly predictable around that time, the life in the, com- in the group starts to fade a bit. Momentum is slowed. And it starts to get a bit easier to not come at all and to avoid the situation completely. What's wrong with us? I find a ton of solace in the letters Paul wrote to the early Christian communities. To the community in the city of Philippi, he wrote, I plead with Eudia, I plead with Suntuke to be of the same mind in the Lord. To the community in the city of Corinth, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Oh my gosh. To the community in the city of Thessalonica, 
We hear that some among you are idle and destructive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. And my personal favorite to Titus, a leader who is helping shape the community of Christians on the island of Crete. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. Wow, well, I mean, it's in scripture. It must be true, right? Well, at least uh, we aren't the only ones that are messed up, right? Paul's letters to Christian communities and leaders are taming with confrontation about stuff. Some of it is explicit, like the dude sleeping with his stepmom. And let me just say, I am so thankful we haven't had to deal with that yet, I guess. But a lot of the confrontation in Paul's letters is subtle. When he tells a community in general terms that sexual immorality should be avoided, he's most likely teaching that because sexual immorality is a problem in the community. When we are silent in the face of overt sin in the life of our brothers and sisters, when we say nothing when someone crosses a boundary or wrongs us, the vitality of our communities will diminish. Our effectiveness for the kingdom will lessen, and we will, quite frankly, miss out on some of the stuff the Spirit wants to do in us and with us. I need to make an admission to you guys. I am an optimist by nature. It drives my wife crazy since she's, you know, a realist. I don't want to come across as disingenuous when I say this next piece, so hear me out. I don't want to give it a sense of false optimism or, or be cheesy about this. When you are in community with people, they will offend you, sin against you, and annoy you. And I don't want to downplay that. People hurt themselves and each other, and it's not something I take lightly. It's real. Community provides a context in which people can't hide their sin and character flaws. And when that happens, people often get hurt. But I also believe in a God who brings good out of bad. Community provides an opportunity to see God form us in places that would not be reached outside of community. When people test your patience and fail, and you fail, that shows you where God still needs to mature you and grow you. When someone sins against you and you can't bring yourself to forgive them, that reveals something about you. When you sin against someone else and, and can't bring yourself to admit that, you, that you're wrong or apologize, there's a big spotlight on who you really are. You can't hide it anymore. I want to come back to this quote that Josh used a couple weeks ago. In their book, Slow Church, see Christopher Smith and John Pattison write, Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together, or we do not grow much at all. This may be making some of you a bit uncomfortable. For others, you may be like, okay, but what am I supposed to do? It's important that you stay with me through this entire teaching. Please just, just track with me. You may be thinking about someone you want to confront. Stop for right now. You may be scared someone may want to confront you. Don't worry, you just stop too. 
we need to nuance confrontation out in order that we handle it well. So turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. It's in the New Testament. It starts with a P. (laughs) You should be able to find it with that information. Look down and read with me, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as King Jesus. This is our goal as a community. We want this. I want this for you. I want this for me. I want this to be a defining characteristic of our communities. If we don't have the proper paradigm or heart for each other, we can't handle conflict and confrontation. We will fail it will be ugly. And while this is our goal, it's also our starting place. We want our communities to be fully formed, be in line with what Paul says here. But we aren't there yet. We need to constantly make a concerted effort to place ourselves in line with this, continually checking to see if we're being faithful to these commands, allowing the Spirit to shape us to be these kinds of people and communities. So let's dive into the scripture a bit in order to understand the starting place for confrontation. Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Paul in verse 1 has a bunch of if statements. They're the kind that are rhetorical, though. He knows he's writing to a bunch of people who follow Jesus. So he assumes as followers of Jesus, they have access to all of this. Encouragement from being united with Messiah, comfort from his love, common share in the Holy Spirit, tenderness and compassion. These are all things that we have access to as followers of Jesus. So you must see yourself and those in your community as people who have been extended an amazing amount of grace and forgiveness by God. You and the people in your community have been bought with a price by the king of the universe at a tremendous cost. You are together a part of God's family, brothers and sisters. You share in this together. This is a fundamental paradigm for confrontation. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 2, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Paul is saying, be unified in your faith in Jesus. That's what brings us together, not in sameness, but in unity. That's what brings us together week in and week out. That's what our communities are centered around. We have a common bond, a shared story and heritage. We have the same Holy Spirit that stirs us to love God and others. The thing that brings a new creation in all of us, we share this. So it shouldn't be a surprise or all that difficult to be on the same page, growing in love together and having an almost a natural oneness, right? 
<laughs> yeah, and, and yet it is hard. If it wasn't, Paul probably wouldn't have to write it. Let's look down at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. To me, these two verses are some of the most powerful ideas in human history. It's honestly, honestly, it is really easy for me to get really down uh, on myself because I see how, how far I am in so many different areas of my life when it comes to this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Instead, value others above yourself. One scholar said quite simply that this idea of valuing others above yourself is the linchpin that guarantees the success of the Christian community. Paul goes on to say in verse 5, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. As apprentices to Jesus, this stuff isn't optional to us. Living in this way, being formed as a kind of person who values others above themselves is something rooted in the very mind of King Jesus. Our goal is displayed before us in Jesus' coming into humanity. Now, none of us have this down. Some of us may be closer to having this all down than others. Some may be more naturally inclined to humility and selflessness. You're the lucky ones. Some of you, though, may be new to Jesus and you've never heard this before. You're probably just beginning to be formed into a person like what Paul is talking about. Some of you may have just heard uh, this read for the hundredth time and, and you know all this and you want all this and, and have been formed by the Spirit in this vein for years. Wherever you are in the spectrum, this is our starting paradigm for dealing with conflict and confrontation in our communities. But before we get into the practical steps of confrontation, I want to cover some parameters to make sure that we all understand when we should even be confronting the person in the first place. Parameter one, do you have the right? Have you ever been confronted by someone who shouldn't have confronted you, the, you know, the person who took no interest in any investment in your life until you did something wrong and then they felt they needed to speak into your life with authority and directness and you're just like, what? What was your name again? <laughs> yeah, it's not fun. There will be times that you will see something wrong. You will know what needs to be said, but you are not the person to say it. This takes what people call emotional IQ or emotional intelligence. You need to understand your relational standing with the person. Have they invited you to speak into their life? Do they speak into yours? Can they trust your motives? If there's a no, then most likely, most likely you aren't the person to confront them. But here's a quick caveat. If the person sins directly against you, then you're the person that needs to go to them. But we'll get into that in a bit. Parameter two, what is your reason? Confrontation is not about you. It's never about being able to put someone in their place or exacting your pound of flesh for a perceived wrong or slight or making life more convenient for you. Please, before confronting anyone about anything, take a step back and check your motivations for doing so. 
Confrontation needs to be about restoring the person in love. You, as a child of God, are calling your sibling back to their identity. They are in Jesus. They are a new creation. They have been bought from slavery and darkness at a price by God. You are simply calling them with love and compassion and grace to live into that reality. Please, consider this as well. Is this something you need to let go or bring up? Personalities will clash. People will annoy you or slight you in little ways. You are not supposed to confront everyone on everything they ever do wrong. You will often have to exercise patience and grace. And just remember this, there is a great chance you annoy them too, a lot. Were they just having a bad day or really tired, was no harm or wounding done to you, then it's probably a good time to silently extend them grace, understanding, and patience. Finally, are you confronting them in an area that is in tune with what Jesus is up to in their lives? Maybe instead of confrontation uh, and and bringing up uh, their failures, maybe they need encouragement to keep working in their apprenticeship to Jesus. Maybe you need to say, I see your progress you've been making, and I'm proud of you. Keep it up. Parameter three, be clear and honest. When confrontation happens, it's really easy to either sugarcoat it or exaggerate it. But please be aware that these come from fear and pride, two things that are not what Jesus is about. If we sugarcoat these conversations, it's from a place of fear. We are afraid uh, of hurting their feelings or damaging our relationship or having an unfavorable response. If we exaggerate, then we are operating out of a a place of pride. You know, I, I would never do what they're doing. Both of these responses reveal a lack of love. They show that you're willing to put yourself above the growth and wholeness of your brother or sister. Parameter four, last one. Your word choice and tone matters. There's a difference or there's a balance between gentleness and firmness. Your goal is to say clearly, I think this is wrong and I love you. Give them reasons as to why you think that they're in the wrong and engage with them. Listen to them when they speak to you. Take their perspective seriously and with compassion. Our community had uh, one of those awkward conversations that happen from time to time, and and trust me, uh, they do. Uh, We had ours uh, just over this last summer. We needed to work through a particular situation, and I felt I had a pretty good handle on it. So so I figured I I should spearhead the thing. Uh, But it didn't go as I had planned in my head, and we all ended the night with nothing really resolved or agreed upon. You know, one of, one of those times where things are still kind of left hanging in the air. A couple of weeks later, the two dudes that had been there for the conversation reached out to me and wanted to talk. I kind of figured it had to do with the conversation since, since things didn't really get resolved, but I wasn't sure the particulars of what they wanted to say. So before the three of us talked, I took time to pray and listen to the Spirit. And I felt the Spirit was telling me to listen to these guys and apologize. I was like, huh? You know, uh, apologize for what, sweet little me? So the three of us talked. And they sat me down and basically explained that what I had said to them was really offensive and inappropriate. 
They told me that I had spoken to them like an authority figure to his underlings, and I had made assumptions that weren't true. At first, I was, I, I was listening to them. At first, I was like, wait, you think I did what? But I remembered what the Spirit had said to me, and so I tried to hear them out and accept what they were saying. It was honestly really, uh, it was really hard to hear, but I apologized for speaking to them in, in that way. It certainly hadn't been my goal to do so. But to be real with you guys, uh, it was the second time within a year I had been accused of that. The first time it happened, I prayed over it, and I asked the Spirit to speak into it, and he brought up this scripture in 1 Corinthians 13. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. I had felt the Spirit warn me that no matter how right, how sure of myself and in line with the scriptures I am, that if I don't speak that truth in love, that I have nothing. I'm in the wrong. The words and the tone that I chose to communicate to my community were wrong. And because of it, I forfeited my right to speak into the situation. Be careful how you communicate what you need to communicate. As you speak the words, have you been thoughtful enough to at the same time communicate love, compassion, and grace to the person you're speaking to. Maybe you need to take time before the conversation to plan out exactly what it is you want to say and how you want to say it. Are you coming to them not as a superior, but as a sibling who cares deeply for them? Hopefully these parameters should bring some clarity to confrontation in general ways. I really think though that we struggle uh, with confrontation uh, for honest reasons, often. Confrontation isn't always black and white. There are often gray areas as to whether you should or how you should or what the outcome will be. And, and that's okay. I actually see this as a positive thing. Shocking, right? Uh, we are a community that is centered on our rabbi. We do community because of Jesus. We also do community in partnership with Jesus. And the difficulties in confrontation and conflict should, should push us to be dependent on Jesus and his spirit. We need to be praying and asking him to speak into the life of our community. We need to respond and be obedient to the leading of the spirit. That's a sign of a healthy community. When should you confront someone? Before I talk about that, you need to understand that there are gray areas here. I would recommend asking someone removed from the situation that you trust to, to speak the truth to you. I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe you're wrong about the situation. But hear me out. Discretion is extremely important. Be very, very wary of the possibility of gossip and steer clear of it. <laughs> but unfortunately, that's for another teaching. A situation that calls for confrontation is if someone sins against you. It could have been a, a rude, discouraging, off-the-hand comment that when you bring to the person's attention, they just say, oh, oh man, I'm, I'm sorry. That was really dumb of me to say. Would you forgive me? Or maybe it's way bigger than that. Either way, if they sinned against you, it is your obligation to talk to them about it. You can't send a friend or a spouse in your place. A second scenario is if they're choosing 
to sin. Maybe they drink too much or are messing around with their boyfriend or girlfriend or, or, or maybe they are choosing to hate someone or, or, or a group, a people group. Whatever it is, this is where running through the parameters, the four parameters we were just talking about, and having a sensitivity to the spirit is really, really important. A third scenario is if it's not really a sin thing, but, but functionally hindering to your community. <laughs> the, uh, the easiest example that I can think of, and which probably all of you can relate to, is, is the person who is amazing, they're awesome, you love them, you love being around them, uh, and they really love to talk during you know, group conversations. A lot. Maybe a little bit too much. They definitely aren't in sin, but they do need to be lovingly and graciously told, hey, we love you a ton. We are so thankful that you're a part of our community. And, and this is what you're doing. And it, it's actually kind of hindering the community in this way. So after those scenarios, the question still that needs to be answered is, how should confrontation take place? And thankfully, Jesus talked about confrontation in the context of, of the church. Turn to Matthew chapter 18, and we'll start reading in verse 15. Matthew chapter 18, it's, um, it's the, first, the first book of the New Testament. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I actually had to think about that. I, I doubted myself for a second. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, first book of the Bible of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. Let's read it. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Jesus uh, has this really practical way of addressing uh, sin and confrontation in the context of community. Think of what Jesus is, is teaching here as, as a type of, of wisdom literature in the vein of Proverbs. It generally fits most scenarios, but there are scenarios where this wouldn't work. Say if uh, one person has sinned against two or three people, or if there's a whole group of people that are in sin. But with that said, let's parse out what Jesus is saying into three steps. Step one, just between the two of you. In verse 15, Jesus says to speak to the person one-on-one. -on -one. And, and here's a reminder. It, it might not be because they sinned against you, per se. You may know some sort of lifestyle that they're living, which is contrary to the way of Jesus. It's not harming you directly, but out of concern, love, and compassion, you need to speak to them. So you run through those four parameters, and you're definitely the person to talk them down. Talk to them, so you sit them down with them face to face. I know that this can be intimidating and difficult, but uh, this is why we ground confrontation and calling them back to who Jesus has made them to be a new creation. We do this with love and grace and compassion. And this may seem a bit backwards to you, but if you value the person above yourself, you will inconvenience yourself to sit them down and have the conversation that needs to needs to take place. Speak with tenderness and listen to them. Hear them out, whether they sing, experiencing, 
thinking. Francis Spufford said this, Taking the things people do wrong seriously is part of taking them seriously. It's part of letting them be real enough to be worth loving rather than just attractive or glamorous or pretty or cool. Step two, one or two others. If you speak to the person one-on-one, they may not hear you out. Maybe they were hurt by what you said and became defensive, or maybe they just flat out disagreed with you. Whatever the case, after you give them a bit of time for the spirit to speak to them and to you, you need to bring in some neutral mediators. This may be your community leader or someone else who knows both of you and you can both trust to be a wise third party. Listen, though, you don't just grab all your close friends and team up on the person. These other people, this neutral third party, are those who are filled with the spirit and who can wisely and objectively, underline that word, objectively weigh in on the issue. You need to lay out your perspective and then allow for the other person to bring their perspective. The goal is to see the person repent or or turn from their sin and choose life. But you may be surprised. Maybe this neutral third party will bring a perspective or wisdom to the situation that changes the thing entirely. But if it is established that repentance needs to take place, the person may not be ready, uh, they may not be ready or, or choose to do so during the conversation. It may take days or weeks for the person to process through everything to hear the spirit and respond in an appropriate manner. Lastly, the third step, the church. If the, if the person still uh, won't repent after being encouraged uh, by yourself twice and, and by that third party in the second step, then you would bring it to the church leadership. We would then sit down with the two parties and speak into the situation, not to condemn, but to encourage to choose the way that leads to life and not death. In verse 17, where it talks about pagan, uh, about the pagan and tax collector, there's not a consensus as to what Jesus means by this. There's some disagreement about what Jesus was trying to get at here, but we do know that, that tax collectors and pagans would not have been associated with at all by the average Jewish person. So we can know this uh, for sure. The relationship between the community and this person who's uh, caught up in sin experiences brokenness, not as a form of punishment, but, but a form of intervention to see healing and wholeness restored. Have you guys ever seen uh, the TV show Intervention? Yeah, yeah. At some point, Hannah and I were into it, or uh, I don't know, at least I, I was into it. She watched it with me. It, it, was fasc- it was a fascinating show that would chronicle someone's drug addiction. But unbeknownst to the drug, drug addict, they were also chronicling the family and friends as they prepared to have an intervention with the addict. The choice was simply laid out. Either get help for your addiction or our relationships would be severed. It was interesting to see how some in the family would resist the either-or choice that the intervention necessitated. But when it, when it happened, it, it was largely effective. If the family was serious and was willing to sever the relationship in order to cease enabling the person, then the addict would often choose to get help. It wasn't out of hatred that the family and friends did this, but out of deep love. Paul, when speaking to the church in Corinth about the dude having relations with his stepmom, and I I promise you this is the last time we're going to bring this up, 
it is actually reported that there is sexual, sexual immorality among you, and of the kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man that has been doing this? It's not a fun thing or an angry thing or a spiteful thing. It is something to go into mourning over. We grieve this brokenness. Thankfully, I I can say that this is not something that often needs to be done. Usually, a person hears out their community and responds to the spirit. That's step one or step two. Before we end tonight, I want us to think about two aspects of conflict and confrontation. The first is, as we speak into each other's lives and and challenge each other, a really big roadblock starts to rear its ugly head. Pride. I wish I could parse out the cultural reasons that contribute to create the fertile soil of pride in our lives. I suspect it's a complex mixture of the cultural narratives and, and practices that we, that we breathe in, and also human nature that produces people that cannot fathom that they could be wrong. It takes humility to value others above yourself, and it takes humility to accept correction from those in your community. And it's honestly, it's a huge bummer for me to see the interpersonal relationships and communities stifled, damaged, or destroyed because of the pride of one or both parties in a conflict. I want you to hear out these words of Peter and take them seriously. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Pride is a serious thing. God opposes the proud by his very nature. That should make you you and I pause for a second or two. I hate seeing pride quench the work of the Spirit in my life and in yours. I hate the superiority over each other it produces and the hiding of shame and guilt. I think what Peter does here is really important for us to understand. He ties humility to a willingness to submit what control we have of our lives to God. We don't actually control much in our lives to begin with. We don't choose what family we're born into or with what DNA we can't control the people around us, our our friends or our family or our spouse or our kids. We are only one of many influences on whether we take our next breath. And I think what Peter is, is getting at is pride comes when we try to control the narrative of our lives. And that's God's rule. When we submit our lives to Jesus, we are saying, Jesus is Lord and I am not. Jesus defines each aspect of our lives. He becomes the authority on and paradigm for all of our choices. He is the one that shapes our narrative. Do we have a role and responsibility in that with Jesus? Yeah, absolutely. We are required to actively participate in this. But it's not on our terms. In the imagery of Revelation, we throw our crowns at the feet of Jesus. We submit to his authority. Uh, 
And he has chosen a community of people, a family centered around his cross to have input and authority in our lives. It requires us to submit the narrative of our lives to the community around us for input and correction. It requires us to allow followers of Jesus into the darkness of the deepest part of us in order to speak life and truth and grace into those areas. I readily admit that the family of God, our church, our communities are not perfect and will make mistakes. Because of that, some of you may be feeling this internal cringe to what I'm saying. And I think you really are ones that that need to hear what I just said. I would even go as far to say with just a, a ton of love and compassion that your problem isn't with community. Your problem may be with the God who asks you to operate in humility and submission within a community. Perhaps you were hurt by someone in the context of community that is valid. But the remedy to that isn't no community, it's healthy community. For all of us tonight, the challenge is before us. For myself, I know that I daily am in need of confessing to Jesus the ways I've been prideful. This is an area that from time to time I'll ask Jesus or the Spirit to speak into because it's easy to be blind to. Sometimes there's nothing, and sometimes he says this right here. And then I have the opportunity to confess it. We have the chance tonight to confess, repent, to jettison and reject our pride and throw our crowns at the feet of Jesus. If we want to thrive with Jesus, if we want our communities to be healthy, And if we want to be used by God to see the kingdom of God come in powerful ways to our city, then there is no other way than with humility. Second aspect that I want to talk about is with humility will naturally follow repentance and then the need for forgiveness as well. Jesus had some pretty extreme words and parables about those who have been forgiven by God and yet will not forgive their brother or sister. One of those parables comes right after the section we read in Matthew 18. The the cliff notes of the parable, and go and read it on your own time, is this. There's a servant that owes a king a crazy amount of money. There's no way he'll be able to pay it all back. And when the king goes to collect on the debt, the dude begs for more time to work off this impossible debt. But instead of giving more time, the king shows incredibly, uh, incredible mercy and forgives the entire debt. A little later, the same servant goes to a fellow servant and demands payment on a smaller and more realistic debt. This indebted servant uses the same words as the one who just got his debt forgiven. And then the story takes this unexpected twist. The servant, who was just forgiven a crazy amount of money, refuses to show mercy to his fellow servant, who owes a much more reasonable amount of money. Other servants see this and report it to the king, who is justifiably ticked off. The king calls his first servant back in and tells him because of his lack of mercy, he will now be responsible for the original debt. And Jesus explains this is how our Father will treat us if we don't forgive each other. 
Those are really heavy words. Jesus takes unforgiveness on our part very seriously. I think the way N.T. Wright puts the reality of forgiveness is really helpful. He says this, Forgiveness is more like the air in your lungs. There's only room for you to inhale the next lungful when you've just breathed out the previous one. If you insist on withholding it, refusing to give someone else the breath of life they may desperately need, you won't be able to take any more in yourself, and you will suffocate very quickly. It's either open or closed. If it's open, able, and willing to forgive others, it will also be open to receive God's love and forgiveness. But if, but if it's locked up to the one, it will be locked up to the other. I suspect that some of you are suffocating right now. Perhaps you've said the words, I forgive you, or it's fine, don't worry about it. And yet you still find yourself wrapped up in the offense. Your anger is kindled each time you think about it and you let it burn. Or maybe you just refuse to forgive someone outright. You hide it pretty well by not confronting the person at all. You stay silent and just go through the motions of a relationship, of community. If nobody knows it's an issue, then you can hold on to your anger and bitterness. I think right now you have a choice. Choose life and breathe out forgiveness or keep choking on your unwillingness to forgive. Confess your struggle or unwillingness to forgive to God. Say the words to Jesus, forgive me for not forgiving my brother or sister. Maybe it's appropriate for you to plan to make a time to meet with the person you need to offer forgiveness to and follow through with it. Maybe you need to confess your unwillingness to forgive someone and ask the person to forgive you for not forgiving them tonight. I would encourage you to ask the Spirit to speak into this. Talk it through with someone in your community and obey what he asks you to do. I understand that tonight has ended on a bit of a heavy note. I don't want to come down hard on you, my friends, especially since I struggle with these things as well. While I was thinking and praying through this teaching and while I wrote it, I felt the Spirit wanted to speak into these two areas with a directness and seriousness. Not to bring shame or condemnation, but to offer life. Pride and unforgiveness for some of you may be hindering the work of Jesus in your life, stifling it and causing frustration. The point isn't to be harsh with you at all. The point is to allow you to move past what you've been stuck on, to allow you to take a step forward and breathe a new air and new season in your life with Jesus. Community isn't always fun, and it certainly isn't always easy. But this is what our King asks us to do. And what's awesome is that even when it's bad, Jesus isn't asking us to just grin and bear it. He's actually at work in the midst of it, inviting you to partner with him in your formation. When it's bad, Jesus wants to bring good out of it. Formation occurs in both the good and the bad times as well. To end, uh, would you guys mind just closing your eyes? I want to read that uh, section of scripture from Philippians chapter 2 over you guys as a prayer for you and for your communities. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, 
then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the main, same mindset as Christ Jesus. Let's all stand. I want to invite the Spirit to speak over us.